0: 2985, or send an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Colin Donovan is in the house, ready to go. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside of the United States and Canada, that number is 1205 271 2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1205 271 2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky, and Jeff Burson, handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every single Friday, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you?
2: Yeah, doing pretty good.
1: I had put my earbuds in, so I, whatever you were trying to tell me, I, well, I couldn't hear. Then I'll just it, repeat is it, myself. Is it, is it fit for, uh, for on-air consumption?
2: Uh, yes, yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> just, uh, just to note that we have, uh, as of, uh, I think it was uh, yesterday, actually, uh, Pope Francis signed the decree declaring the heroic virtues of uh, Sister Lucia dos Santos, the uh, older of the three children who saw the Blessed, lay, blessed Mother at Fatima and so she has now she's no longer a servant of god but she is a venerable servant of god or as most people simply say a venerable and uh so she will be awaiting uh, as are we the uh finding of a miracle through her intercession uh before she can be at, be beatified and then a second miracle another miracle after that for canonization so i'm uh I am not taking any bets. Not taking any bets that she won't achieve uh, canonization at some point, as have the I other two children. I think it's kind of a take children. your
1: pick at this point.
2: Yes, I think so. <laughs> I think so. So we'll uh, uh, we'll await that. But uh, thanks be to God for uh, uh, this uh, gift of the Church of her example. And I've been recommending to people who've asked me about it uh, her book, "Calls from the Messages Message of Fatima," to understand not just the message as it can be found say on our website in our under devotions in the fatima section but also as through a lifetime of her mysticism she uh and her own contemplation of the message of fatima you could say this is the distillation of, of what uh, she found and uh, profoundly found in that message
1: you know we throw these terms around a little bit just because it's 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 just part of our common parlance when <laughs> we Catholics, talk about these right. as Catholics. Yeah. You know, but but uh, when Holy Mother Church, we talk about the miracles that are involved in, in declaring someone either a blessed or a saint. And essentially what we're saying is that, that um, a circumstance has been investigated and has been determined by both natural and spiritual authorities right. to be... Nigh on impossible outside of the miraculous, right? And um, therefore, uh, any miracle that's under consideration would be a miracle where the principles had asked for the potential saints' intercession in this matter, right? And so we're we're essentially saying that it certainly looks like there's no way this could have happened except by miraculous circumstances. This person is requesting the intercession of the person in question, and if the person in question's intercession is going to, uh, you know, uh, I, I want to be careful here, but, but if, if the miracle is going to come about doing any part to the person's intercession, then they must be in heaven.
2: Right, and, and the logic of it, is, it starts with, with a reasoned evaluation of what constitutes uh, the natural and the supernatural. Uh, The natural is something which can have natural causes. Uh, In other words, human causes, the laws of nature, things that are in the experience of human beings. So, for example, uh, what happens at Lourdes is a very good example because probably, uh, although everybody who is beatified and canonized will have had a miracle done, probably the most ongoing example of this is in the case of Lourdes where there have been 70 Formally declared miracles and many others that probably are, but the the lack of this uh, paperwork, if you will, because what the church is going to look at first is from the point of view of, of of medicine of science. Is there any explanation for this change of the person's medical status? Okay, for that the church wants evidence that this was something that was long standing that it's documented by different medical authorities by for you know starting with the person's doctor the first time they go and say doctor this hurts and then through specialists and then through efforts to save by medicine or surgery or whatever it is and when everything is done and there is no scientific medical hope of uh, or possibility of the person being cured if having inters- sought the intercession, say, of Sister Lucia or, or Pope John Paul II, who's already canonized, or take the two children, uh, Jacinta and Francisca, who are already canonized. Having sought their intercession, suddenly the person from one moment to the next, essentially, is cured. And there is no natural causation. It's not medicine took, taken last week or last year. It's not any substantial change in the treatment and therapies that have been used to try to remedy, but there is something that science can't explain. At that point, you have a medic- something medically inexplicable, scientifically inexplicable. And this goes through m- multiple, uh, you know, this is not, let's, let's get our, our friendly uh, church favorite doctor who's going to say that this is a miracle. no. This is studied based on whatever happens locally. It's studied at the local diocese, which means they call the experts who, the individuals who dealt with the person. They get all of the documentation. They do all of that. And then they make a judgment that nobody can explain this. Then it has to go to Rome, and the same thing will be done there. And then finally, the question is for the theologians. Is this something supernatural? that only God can do. Now, obviously, if I hacked off, or take the to take the case out of Scripture, Peter took a sword and cut off the ear of the, uh, of the guard. It's portrayed often in movies, whether it happened this way. Our Lord picked it up and reattached it. No explanation, no sewing <laughs> involved, nothing. So that's the kind of thing, or child raised from the dead, or whatever the situation might be. The theologians look at that and they say, only by divine power could this have been done. Not the power of the saint, ultimately it's God who exercises the divine power. But it's the intercession of a person that demonstrates to the church that that individual is in heaven, because if they were in the other place, God would not be hearing their prayer. In fact, he would deny that. So the church goes at it methodically, first with reason and then with religion and theology and faith, and then ultimately the the pope exercising his charism as, as supreme pastor of the church makes that final judgment and issues a decree. Uh, in the case of venerable, it has to do with their heroic virtues. other that the person has lived a life of heroic virtue as demonstrated by the long documented biography biography that is developed during the course of the cause, taking testimony and documents, letters, writings, and so on, and looking at the person to see how, whether they exercised faith, hope, and charity whether they exercised uh, prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude, the witnesses of individuals who experienced that person, and when all is said and done, that they did this not in an ordinary fashion, but heroically in the most difficult of circumstances that would suggest the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in that person's life, because the Holy Spirit perfects the virtues in us, and that's what they're looking for, that kind of holiness. So the venerable means that that has been found in Sister Lucia and that uh, we move on, as I said, to the next stage, seeking a miracle that would permit her beatification, in which God would witness to her being in heaven.
1: Eight three three two eight ewtn Wide open phone lines for you on this Friday edition of Open Line. Waiting for your phone calls for Colin Donovan, our very own Vice President of Theology, on a Friday edition of EWTN's Open Line.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You
1: know, one of the rich traditions, uh, the rich Christian uh, in general and Catholic in particular traditions is the anointing with oil in uh, various circumstances and we've got a great item for you at EWTN's religious catalog biblical oil it's made from pure olive oil combined with oil from 2,000 plus year old trees in the very Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed and oil from the Galilee region of the Holy Land Uh, it is then blended with fragrant oils and spices to create a unique formula um the scents uh, that are involved are frankincense and myrrh, hyssop, rose of Sharon, spikenard. And each bottle is a quarter ounce, and you receive a discount when you buy two or more. Please have your oil blessed by a priest so that it can be used as a sacramental. It's available now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's cwtnrc.com. They're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. That's standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Still a couple of open phone lines and all kinds of time for your calls. First up today is Dave, a first-time caller in Billings, Montana, listening on Billings Catholic Radio. Dave, you are on with Colin Donovan.
2: Hello, Mr. Donovan. How are you doing? Uh, Pretty good. Uh, What's your question today, Dave?
3: My my question, I I, I am a podiatrist, and I have used hypnosis on patients who have needle phobias. And I understand hypnosis is uh, not—the Catholic Church doesn't think hypnosis is a good good idea. Is that true?
2: Uh, No, I don't think the Church has said that at all. Uh, it looks at all those things and other claims of natural remedies. Whether there is an appeal to uh, powers other than nature or other than uh, other than holy things. So, in some of the Eastern practices, of course, there is an appeal to impersonal forces that you're trying to conduct and you know heal things. Uh, Reiki is a good example of that. Uh, in the case of hypnosis, I, I think there are some understanding of how of how it works so it's the morality of many things like that is is some other moral consideration making its use in this particular case unacceptable so You see the entertainment use of it in magic shows and, you know, it has been portrayed in movies and television shows. Bark like a dog, Colin. Yes, exactly. Those kinds of things. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that's not very respectful of the person, certainly. But I think in medical uses where it's for a decided purpose and the practitioner is not going outside of those, to achieve, so, for instance, uh, helping the individual gain, you know, uh, impulse control or something like this. Addictions. That, addictions like and that. Uh, I think that's those kinds of... kind of thing. Exactly. Kind of stuff, those yeah. kinds of uses. If you are using it to manipulate and control the person or to plant ideas, as in the movies and TVs, which will come to fruit later on in their accomplishing something you know, nefarious or, or whatever, that would not be a moral use. So I think in the medical cases, that would be, that would be the standard that uh, is used. And in other things, uh, naturopathy and, and other, uh, um, you know, what would be not, today it would often be called not evidence-based medicine, uh, <laughs> anecdotal medicine that surprisingly often works. Uh, but they can't uh, often explain why. So that would be your criteria to use.
1: How's that, Dave? Perfect. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Michael's watching us on YouTube, and he wants to know, what is a faithful priest to do when their bishop is in error when dealing with Catholic teaching?
2: Well, the gospel gives us to the answer to that. We start by talking to the person themselves. Uh, so a priest should have that discussion with the bishop. You know, uh, it would be impolite in all circumstances to fire off a letter to the federal government, for example, if you were had a a, uh, a boundary line dispute with your neighbor as to where the fence was going to go. So the process of gradually appealing to higher authority is the, the way to go in all human situations, uh, you know, not turning it into a federal case or a Roman case immediately. So you should any, any individual in the church should talk to their pastor if that's the, the authority they're under or their bishop. If they have some concern and disagreement about pastorally and so on, uh, they better be prepared to explain and justify why they think Well, what is being done is contrary to church teaching. Uh, You can then certainly uh, appeal, and I think with bishops, it would normally be to the congregation uh, for bishops initially. Uh, If it regards a doctrinal question, most of those kinds of congregations, bishops, clergy, and so on, will also refer to the other appropriate dicasteries, such as faith or sacraments. Uh, depending on what the particular case is. So uh, that kind of gra- gospel gradualism is the, is the way to approach that issue.
1: Uh, We're heading out to the desert. Scott is in Arizona listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Scott, you're on with Colin Donovan.
4: Hi, thank you. Good afternoon, gentlemen.
2: Good afternoon. I have a
4: question. I have an ongoing conversation, debate, with a Jehovah Witness neighbor of mine, and mm-hmm. most of the time we get to a certain point, and then we usually, and it's the Trinity, and then we stop.
3: <laughs> but, the,
4: the, but the question, the real question that I have is... That does not exactly this,
1: put you in exclusive company, Scott. <laughs> <laughs>
4: right. So so the the question I have is, I thought I'd do some research and find out, okay because he corrects me all the time when i say god and it's Mm -hmm. jehovah and i said okay well i want to find out the root of jehovah where did jehovah come from and i did a little research i wanted to call with a little intelligence before um, i got online and i found out that um, jehovah you know has a root in the old testament that before they had vowels Mm -hmm. or consonants and then vowels were added and the Greek interpretation may have come from Yahweh and eventually into Jehovah because of the vowels added. So then I was reading, and I, I read that there was a Dominican saint in the 12th, 13th century that we uh, have recorded that was the first one to use the word Jehovah, and his name was Romundo's Martini, if I am and and he was the first one recorded to use the word Jehovah. So I understand it's an irreverence view from the Jehovah's to the Catholics that we say God, and I also know that rooted in the Old Testament, too, uh, you know, Lord to uh, Adonai. Um, I see God have many, seems to have many different names, and but specifically the Jehovah, I just wanted to find out sure. if am
2: mm-hmm. I on the
4: right track when I get back to him? <laughs>
2: Well, well, you are, uh, uh, maybe with a, a slightly different uh, uh, angle on all of that. So your, your history of that is quite correct, that uh, before the Masorites, who were Jewish rabbis, I believe, in the 8th or 9th century uh, after Christ, uh, the, the Bibles, and you pick up a Hebrew Bible today, they still are only consonants. Uh, the vowels are just something that comes innately as you're reading it. You know the word, you say it. You've, uh, if you've ever done these things online, where you know here's a here's a. It's pretty, para- remo-
1: it's pretty remarkable. It works it, in English. We can,
2: exactly. You you just take out all the vowels and we can still read a text. It's it's kind of amazing. So there's some guessing as to what those vowels were. Also with regard to the pronunciation of obviously yod, he, and vav, the three. Uh, letters that make up Yahweh, uh, we usually see it as uh, uh, Y-H-W, could be a V, the H, depending on whether you're a German or others, the, the uh, Y would be a J, so in Germanic languages, for instance, exactly, uh, Yah, yes, uh, J-A in German. So it also deals, it also gets into the question how different uh, peoples uh, pronounce words. Uh, We see that, geez, different parts of the United States, different accents. So it's very complicated. So what we do know is that the three consonants, and, of course, because Moses extracts an interpretation from God, as well as what his name is, that is, I am who am. In other words, most scholars would say that this refers to the divine nature. God is He who is. He has nobody who produced Him. In other words, He doesn't. He's not a, a a fruit of reproduction, as in us. He has nobody who caused His existence. And His existence never had a beginning, and it never had an end. And so this eternal is of god is the most basic feature of god that we can describe and this is what the course the jews were given it was left to christ to reveal the 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 procession of the persons within the trinity all of whom are god but yet only the same god that's a mystery and i'm sure you'll you've probably gotten there with him so in terms of the history doesn't matter where it came from you know whether it was a dominican friar or a saint uh, you know any particular saint because all of this is at the level of interpretation so most scholars catholic protestant and otherwise would say that yahweh is probably closer to that pronunciation except of course the jews never pronounced it they inserted They inserted Adonai, or or they used other words to go, or they didn't refer to God at all. They say heaven, and we see that in the Gospels. You know, call heaven to witness. You're not saying you're calling God to witness, you're calling heaven, but it's the same thing. So all of these uh, euphemistic ways of avoiding the name of God were certainly part of the practice of our Lord's Day and of uh, especially Orthodox Judaism today. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is th- what the church has done with that. We write, Lord, this is really translating kurios. So when Elizabeth says to Mary, How is it that the mother of my kurios, Lord, she's saying, How is it that the mother of my God has come to me? I think. Non-Catholics need to chew on that a little bit when they say that Mary is not the mother of God. The only word in Greek that is used there, kurios, which also has secular meanings, Elizabeth uses of the mother whose fruit is God, whose fruit in her womb. So, with regard to your particular question with the Jehovah Witnesses, I think you have to look at it this way. You're talking about the divine nature He's giving the divine nature a name because he can't give it the name Trinity. And they have done that, but their choice of names is wrong based on all the scholarship you'll find out there.
1: It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: Got a big shout out to a member of the EWTN radio family, KGLL 88.1 FM in Gillette, Wyoming is celebrating their fifth year of EWTN partnership. Congratulations to our friend at Real Presence Radio and all of us, from all of us rather, here at EWTN. Still open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTM. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. That's what Mike did. He's in Riverside, California, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Mike, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program.
3: Well, thank you, fellas, for taking my call.
1: Sure. What what can we do for you?
3: So I was uh, listening to EWTN earlier this week, and kind of came in um, uh, l- later in the, the phone conversation. Uh, a fella uh, had called in asking about apostolic uh, blessings, and uh, the, um, uh, the the priest with EWTN was giving him an answer uh, that if if we uh, that first off, you can receive an apostolic blessing at any time. You don't have to be on your deathbed, which was uh, kind of news, news to me. Uh, but uh, then he went on to say that if we watched the live broadcast on EWTN of the Pope's uh, Mass and Angelus, that we could uh, receive an apostolic blessing uh, through those. So I wanted to first, uh, you know, confirm that, mm-hmm. that, that that's correct, and then if if it is, do we necessarily then have to receive the sacrament of reconciliation uh, at our local parish?
2: Okay. Yeah. All it's all so, yeah, terminological is what it is. And what, and
3: is. F- what Father
1: Trujillo was drawing a distinction between an apostolic blessing and the apostolic pardon.
2: Right. Yeah, the, the apostolic pardon is reserved to the de- moment, time of death, and obviously a priest is present to give it, and there is the exercise of apostolic authority. All priests have the faculty at the hour of death, on behalf of whoever is pontiff at the time, to give the apostolic pardon, which is effectively a a plenary indulgence for re- uh, all sins that have been repented and confessed, and of course the dying uh have had that opportunity um so a number of things oh back in the day we're coming up on a hundred years ago or maybe we already reached it where marconi invented the radio and the pope of the day was uh, benedict the 15th and i think it was on his watch or it might have been Pius the 11th who came after him but the popes decided when asked the question well if you know Holy Father, if the people hear you over the radio... Actually, the Pope was the first one to use Marconi's new invention. So the very first radio broadcast was of the Pope, uh, Benedict the Fifteenth, I believe. So ultimately, the question came about if people at, at, hear the blessing being given, and the answer was live they can receive a blessing and it's like the blessing it's no different than the blessing at the end of the mass mass the grade of the priest a priest a bishop or a bishop who also happens to be the Pope it's all the priestly blessing it's you know it's uh, you know it's a gratuitous gift of God Uh, it doesn't necessarily remove sin except in this circumstance that by church dogmatic, moral theology teaching, as well as dogmatic, any devout action by which we turned our heart and mind to God removes the guilt of venial sin. That can be the confitier at Mass, that can be using holy water as you coming in the door with a pious, you know, blessing yourself carefully in honor of the redemption, any truly pious act can take away venial sin. None of the above can take away mortal sin in a person who has now the obligation flowing from Christ himself on Easter night, who said to the apostles, "Whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven, whose sins they shall retain you shall retain are retained." Now, the only sins that separate us completely and totally from God are mortal sin, grave sin. And to satisfy what Christ told the church to make this judgment, that judgment can't be arbitrary. Hence, auricular confession, by which we tell the priests the serious things we've done in number and in kind. And the priest exercising the ministry of Christ through the church absolves us from those sins. That's what takes place in confession. Blessings are a wonderful thing. We can, you're watching the Mass live, if you're watching the Pope live, and if you're watching the Urbi at Orbi to the city and the world that takes place at Christmas and Easter, where at the end of the, uh, of the, of the televised, live televised Mass from Rome, the Pope issues his, his uh, message at Urbi at Orbi to the city and the world. And then he gives that, gives a blessing which gives a plenary indulgence. That would be the occasion where if we are in the state of grace, because to get a plenary indulgence, you must be in the state of grace or have recourse to confession shortly thereafter. So nothing gets us around the sacrament of confession instituted by Christ for the particular purpose of reconciling, the sinner who has offended God himself in a serious matter and therefore offended the Son who redeemed us and the Holy Spirit who sanctified us in the process. And so that offense is taken away through the ministry of the church, which is, with baptism, the principal purpose of the church, to keep us in the state of grace or restore us to it, to put us in it or restore us to it when we fall out of our communion with God so those blessings are wonderful things i personally cherish them and but um uh you still have to go to confession if you have mortal sin before you go to communion
3: does that clear it up mike it does and i've not committed any mortal sin uh so i'm i'm well, good, good in that regard, i couldn't uh, i
2: couldn't absolve you anyway and not over the airways it has to be personal it it has to be between in two individuals And we get that asked occasionally, can you go to confession over the phone? And the answer is no. The church has said you can't confess remotely. So get thee to the confessional for those who uh, are in the state of mortal sin.
1: God bless you, Mike. Thanks so much. A great question here on Open Line Friday. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Matthew watching on YouTube, and he wants to know if you can explain the difference between the theological degrees of DD, STD, PhD, etc. How are they the same, and how are they different?
2: Okay. Well, there's actually a long history to that. Uh, the church established universities in the 11th and 12th century in bologna in paris uh, in oxford in england uh, dominicans were often the ones but not necessarily uh, who who ran those and the principal subject was theology and of course philosophy was a, not a new thing per se but there had been the discovery of aristotle's text which was a realist philosophy and proved to be wonderfully conformable to uh, explaining the faith and so philosophy uh, became a discipline and of course we had canon law and civil law as well. Those things that are sort of basic in any kind of a university setting uh, for those days and these days. So the first degrees that were given were simply you would say the master's degree. You became a master of theology what more could you want? You were at the top of your profession. Aquinas did this. You had to write a long dissertation that was multiple volumes of explaining the sentences of Peter Lombard, a previous theologian and philosopher, and it was a pretty rigorous uh, standard. Uh, the Church in Time added the idea of a doctorate. We have that expression when we talk of the fathers and doctors of the church. The greatest theologians are doctors. So you have the teachers, the masters, and you have the greatest theologians, the doctors. And so the idea of masters and doctors in theology, philosophy, uh, has been with us for eight or nine hundred years now. Now, in more recent times, Doctors of Divinity is a sort of a religion degree. It's not, you don't see it much among Catholics, but for some, uh, I think for some of the churches that have bishops, uh, a bishop either has a doctor of divinity degree or given one in, in, in honor, in, uh, a degree in honor, uh, in order to exercise that office, that he would be considered a doctor of, of theology. And so that's what, what the DD would be. Uh, the STD is the modern version of the church's ancient practice. It's a doctor doctorate of sacred theology it deals specifically with the church's discipline of of theology so i have the stl which is the licentiate, the li, uh, license to teach theology in seminary faculties and and other situations the doctorate would be considered the terminal degree of ecclesiastics that is a particular expertise and then finally the phd is a johnny come lately so philosophy, as I said, was one of the ancient disciplines. The doctor of philosophy now is applied to everything from science and sociology and whatever to indicate something parallel to what would be the STD in the church. You can get a PhD in many Catholic universities, for example, in theology, but only if you have a pontifical faculty at it can you get the STD, because those good those degrees are granted by the dicastery for Catholic education in Rome. So uh, that's even higher than that sense than the PhD. And PhDs can teach in Catholic seminaries, and many of them do. They just simply have to, the bishop will appeal and get a faculty from, the, from, from Rome for that, uh, which basically makes them the equivalent of the STD with regard to their Although their, their training is not the same, the, the in sacred theology, as the license has a lot of philosophical church history, canon law. There's a whole, there's a whole different curricula involved in the STD and STL than there are in any, uh, any other degrees. So they're not really equivalent to anything else, whether in Catholic universities or elsewhere, uh, that are not specifically, specifically pontifical degrees.
1: Be sure to check out Register Radio Saturday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. You know, the Synod on Synodality's Instrumentum Laboris, or its its working document, has been released. Uh, Jeanette will discuss that with her guests, as well as... Uh, She'll talk to a Jewish convert to Catholicism, all of it on Register Radio, this Saturday afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Still time for your calls. Pick up the phone and give us a jingle at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Diane would like to know, what is the Catholic belief in the Holy Spirit? When you commit a mortal sin, does the Holy Spirit leave you?
2: Yes, when you commit a mortal sin, you've lost charity, and so charity—you could say—is our union with God. And how do we un- un- unite? Or how are we united with God? The Holy Spirit is the one whose mission is to unite us to God, and so each mortal sin we lose the Holy Spirit uh, and we lose charity. So. We have three theological gifts, faith, hope, and charity. We don't lose faith, and we don't necessarily lose hope. We lose those by particular kinds of sin. But for every mortal sin, we lose charity, and, of course, we lose sanctifying grace and justice, the Holy Spirit, all in one fell swoop. With hope, we have to sin against hope. When we sin against hope, we eventually we chip it away and we lose hope. If we lose hope, we can still get things back if we have faith, because faith teaches us to have hope and calls us to have charity. But once we lose faith, that's a very hard road to come back from because we've lost the very foundation of the, ver- of the life of Christian virtues and the life of the Christian, uh, Christian believer. So each of those theological virtues are important. Faith is the foundational one. Requires a special grace to get back if we've lost it, but God is there and ready to answer such prayers. Oh, Lord, give me faith. You know, I often tell people, and I'm sure Jack has as well, that often if you, you know, if you're trying to solve a problem in theology that makes it difficult for you to to figure out how that can be true, instead of going at it like you're going to reason yourself to the conclusion, ask for the gift of faith. To understand that's his particular gift of the Holy Spirit to understand something that is known some point of knowledge of the faith so we can ask God for understanding of our faith and of the teachings of the faith and that's often more fruitful than slugging it out in books and other things and then you pick up the book and you say well why didn't I see it before
1: well there's a spiritual principle that faith precedes understanding Yes. And a lot of people looking from the outside would say, well, that's just a cop-out to justify whatever you say. But it's real.
2: It is, because the difference is, well, there are two kinds of understanding, natural understanding. The mathematician understands mathematics. The biologist understands biology. And the theologian can understand theology, and none of them necessarily have faith, even the theologian. You know, I I always think of... um, uh, the the great books guy in for University of Chicago um, philosopher anyway he was the editor of the great books and he was uh, for many years uh, he was not a Catholic uh, and then he was an Anglican and not a Catholic and finally became a Catholic and he used to he used to be one of the greatest minds in in talking about St. Thomas Aquinas when they asked him why he didn't become a catholic he said because i don't believe i can explain it to you but i can't believe i don't believe and he did believe before he died mortimer adler that yeah. was the name yeah so that's that's certainly true faith is the is the grace of god that strengthens the intellect that it can believe things which by themselves are beyond the natural power of reason if you can't wrap your mind around the trinity the thing to ask for is not some formula, some explanation that is sufficient for you. Is to ask God for faith, because faith will lead you to the understanding of something which is by itself, by beyond your understanding, and it will strengthen your will to believe in that particular point. That's why faith. I, I think belief is going to be the last thing to go in the world because. Uh, people will retain it long after they've lost charity and even when they sometimes have lost hope. But it can always bring them back from those things. But if you don't keep your faith, you can't be brought back from it without without a particularly special grace from God. It's almost an overwhelming grace.
1: We're heading next to the source and summit of the Christian life, Corpus Christi, Texas. Marianne is a first-time caller watching us on YouTube today. Marianne, thanks for holding. You are on with Colin.
3: Well, thank you so much for taking my call, Mr. Donovan. Sure. thank you. Um, I was wanting to know your um, take on a
2: couple of our ladies' More recent apparitions, in mm-hmm. specifically to which seems, I don't know, to me, kind of like a continuation almost. I know it involves the Rwanda genocide, and um, but they, they saw a vision of help, from what I understand. And uh, I would like to know what your take on that one is. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand, I've seen the docudrama and Immaculate and the Sorrow, of right. Our Lady of Sorrows. Then, uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, updating uh, me on the current status of Medjugorje as far as the Church is concerned, sure. I would appreciate yeah. it. Well, the reason you will see about Cabello on EW10 is uh, what our our standard is, that it has to at least have the you know t- great tolerance of Rome, Cabello is 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 taken to be an authentic revelation, private revelation, uh, and there there are many reasons for that. The, you would you would have to read the probably official documents to get to those. So c- with Cabello, that's that's accepted. Not everything is of a, you know, you you look at you look at any of the apparitions. They all start out as a primarily local phenomena, and they gain strength. Strength. Uh, I think the. Most interesting thing about Cabejo was that it was in Africa, which, to my knowledge, did not have any native apparitions, if you will. Uh, there were in the French colonies and the Portuguese colonies and, and others, of course, those adopted European Uh, Madonnas if you will and so they had the images and uh, I think Our Lady of uh, Algeria or or one of the former French colonies had an image which was basically an Africanized uh, image of, of a European Madonna but Cabello is the first that I'm aware of that gives Africa its own Marian image the way Guadalupe gave the Americas its own Marian image and I think that's important because in its day, Guadalupe was the future of the Church. And in our day, I think Africa is the future of the Church. And the Lord and Our Lady, they don't miss the timing on things. So definitely with Cabejo, there, there's substance there. Mejigoria has not been approved by the Church. It's been judged not to be evident of supernaturality twice, uh, as the, uh, my understanding is uh, that the reported opinions, uh, multiple sources outside, public sources suggest that the majority opinion of the uh, commission, which the Holy See established, was against, although it uh, was uh, possible that the first seven events might have been, but again, nothing has the Church has not said there is evidence of supernaturality at Medjugorje. What the Pope did, I believe, and uh, he's free to contradict me, is give a pastoral solution to the phenomena that Medjugorje is very, very popular. Uh, frankly, uh, my opinion is it uh, it doesn't say very much. Uh, there's no not a lot of substance there. Pray, do penance state of the world, things like that. We know all of this from Fatima and 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 many other uh, accepted apparitions. Uh, there's nothing new there. It gives people consolation. And I think maybe that's part of the logic that the Holy See has adopted here, and that is, in the very language of the decree that set up a, essentially a pastoral solution uh, with regard to Medjugorje, is the concern that the The people who go there are guided in a true devotion, which suggests that there was something a little bit hinky, to use my Chicago generation's word, a little bit hinky about what was taking place there. (coughs) To make it true, you had to have a starting point that was not true. Uh, At least one of the seers that I know of, Ivan, was forbidden to travel around the world and give his little apparition shows and talks in different places. I understand another seer is about to make such an excursion. I don't know what the, the status or permissions associated with that. Um, but uh, to my mind, uh, there's a, a lot to question about Medjugorje, and I am not in the least bit convinced. And I know that Mother Angelica, who in the beginning was uh, open and favorable to it, uh, basically, by the by, the last time I talked to her before she left the ministry here at at, at EWTN was basically the same conclusion as the Roman Commission came to—that maybe the first seven, but the totality of the event, no evidence of supernaturality—and and I. I'm not even prepared to grant the first seven, but the church has certainly not affirmed any of them uh, in any way. And so we are left with the pastoral solution of the phenomena of millions of people uh, going to uh, Medjugorje and trying to, you know, and in their faith, the Lord will reward their faith. That doesn't make an authentic it, apparition, In however. and of itself,
1: it has merit. But, it has merit. But I, th- I think one of the biggest things that it does, this is just my non, mm-hmm. non-theologian personal opinion, is that it really illustrates the wisdom of Holy Mother Church's practice of not uh, passing final judgment on these things until the apparitions have purported to have stopped.
2: Right. and then, But you wonder that there doesn't seem to find any in anything up to now whether you can get it jump, go from that to a conclusion of supernaturality while it, when, it, when it ends. So we'll, we'll wait and see. The church, not Colin Donovan or Jack or anybody else, has the final word on this. Uh, but I, I think people in all their sincerity believe in it. Uh, They find benefit in it after all the practices that are favored there, or you can get out of, uh, you know, 500 Catholic books or more.
1: and the Church has never spoken against that.
2: Right, no, not at all. So, you know, God bless you. Yeah,
1: quickly we'll head to Janine in Metairie, Louisiana, listening on Catholic Community Radio. Just a minute and a half left with Colin. Janine, what's your question?
3: I have two
4: questions. The first one is, did Eve know that the devil was evil before she conversed with him? And the second question is, where did Jesus get his clothes from after he rose from the dead and he put his burial cloth on the tomb?
2: Well, he's God. He could get it from wherever he wanted. And as for Eve, apparently not, because evil is seductive. And it doesn't present itself as evil because we would be repelled by it. It presents itself as comely and winsome and delightful and so on. We only need to look around in our 21st century to see how evil is packaged. And the devil did no different. He's actually the master of it. Hollywood only has learned from him. He is the master.
1: On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again Monday. Until then, God bless.